Welcome to another podcast episode by Impact Medicom. In today's podcast, we talk about the opioid epidemic and the unique position that pharmacists find themselves in to help reduce the number of opioid-related deaths. We are joined by Dr. Ross Tsuyuki and Mark Barnes, who are co-authors on the first-ever Canadian guidelines for naloxone prescribing by pharmacists. The development of the guidelines was managed by us at Impact Medicom, with a steering committee of pharmacists from across Canada. Today's episode is hosted by myself, Anna Christofides, owner of Impact Medicom. Hope you enjoy it. Welcome, everyone, and thanks for joining me today uh, for this podcast episode. So let's start by going around and introducing ourselves. I was wondering if you could maybe talk a little bit about your involvement in the fight against the opioid epidemic and what drew you to the area. Uh, Dr. Suyuki, would you like to start? Sure. My name is Ross Suyuki. I'm a pharmacist, uh, and uh, my day job is uh, I'm a professor uh, in the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Alberta, uh, and I'm chair of the Department of Pharmacology. Um, my my uh, research interests are really um, uh, in public health and in particular, the role that pharmacists can play uh, in public health. So, you know, the important issues like cardiovascular disease and, and now, you know, the opioid ep- epidemic. And, uh, and I also do research, uh, pharmacy practice research uh, um, in this area. I, I guess the other hat that I wear is um, I'm editor-in-chief of the Canadian Pharmacist Journal, uh, which is relevant to, you know, some of the things that we'll be talking about. Great. Uh, great. Thanks so much, Ross. And, uh, and yourself, Mark? Hi, my name is Mark Burns. I'm a community-based pharmacist in Ottawa. Uh, we work in, I guess, primary practice or inner-city addiction-focused pharmacies. So we own the companies RespectRx Pharmacy and in partnership with Recovery Care. And we are, I guess, boots-to-the-ground type of practice where we have access to about 2,500 people who are addicted to opioids. Um, in eastern Ontario, we have locations in Cornwall, we have four in Ottawa and soon to be one in Kingston. So we're, we're we are kind of boost the ground addiction treatment professionals. Um, I guess I'm sort of got started in the whole opioid crisis and, and, and this, I guess, environment through own personal experience. We owned community pharmacies long before Respect RX, and I actually had the misfortune of dispensing a fentanyl, you know, cancer pain patch to a, a dying patient and. Uh, they sold that patch to a 19-year-old man who overdosed and died. So that was the first fentanyl overdose in our community. Wow. And at that point, I developed the Patch for Patch Return Program for Ontario um, through, with some help from folks in North Bay and through Ross Fidel, or through uh, Vic Fideli. And now that's Ontario law. And since then, we've been kind of trying to fight the crisis as best we can and also reduce some of the marginalization and stigma around addiction. So Mark's the real pharmacist. <laughs> wouldn't say that (laughs) (laughs) that's that's really great uh no thank you both for sharing your backgrounds that's that's really helpful so i I guess what i wanted to get into a little bit of understanding i mean we hear about the opioid epidemic but really how big of a problem is it you know how big is it i I don't know if mark you wanted to talk a little bit about that first well really yeah it's you know it's a current environment it's it's interesting we we do have a real problem and really i i always present it as Canada really is at the epicenter of the opioid crisis in the world. 
I mean, one of them. Um, we've consumed the second most amount of opioids, I think, per capita in the world. And if you look at the number, the sheer number of opioid prescriptions that the Canadians are taking, uh, let alone the illicit opioids on the street, and then, you know, the cross-contaminant of opioids and other street drugs, we are in an absolute crisis. If you think about it, in 2018, we lost over 4,400 people uh, to an opioid overdose, death, you know, with roughly one every two hours. For car accident victims, if you want to put it in perspective, we lose the life of a car accident victim, victim one every four hours. So ultimately, you're twice as likely to go to a funeral for someone who died of an opiate overdose than a car accident. When you keep that in perspective and think about the sheer number of the amount of money we spend on seatbelt safety and road salt and speed limits and new highways, I mean, they're all harm reduction techniques. Well, where's all the approaches in addiction? Mm. Wow, that uh, definitely puts it in perspective for sure. Uh, it's quite something. Uh, how has have those numbers changed with COVID? Have they gone up? Have they gone down? Well, first of all, I mean, <laughs> just interesting enough, in 2019, Canada actually did a, a fairly decent job of, we all know this term now, flattening the curve uh, with regards to opioid overdose. We, we kind of lowered the deaths to 3,823. We are making headway. And how do we make headway? Through massive amounts of naloxone distribution education programs just like this and really you know every level of government being committed to this opioid crisis whether it be the health canada and even buying marketing during hockey in canada can you believe and and uh, provincial governments with their naloxone programs and so really it's wonderful we, we slowed it and that's awesome and I'm, I'm a passionate advocate for naloxone use i mean we have the highest naloxone distribution in ontario at 38.1 per opiate harm it's awesome however we are only reaching here in Ottawa, and for the best, only reaching about one every four opioid deaths, according to our corner data. <laughs> so it's bad. It's real yeah. bad. And then with COVID and the current environment, with the introduction of fear, anxiety, social distancing, and using drugs alone, as well as money with CERB, we have, are expecting a 25 to 35% increase in the number of opioid deaths in 2020. So we're back up over 18 and we're probably going to be close to the 5,000 range. Wow. That's, that's quite shocking. Yeah. So, this seems like the, you know, the analogy of, of pouring gasoline on a fire seems appropriate here. Uh, it's pretty scary. Really is, that's for sure. So, so maybe, I, I don't know, Ross, do you want to talk a little bit about what naloxone is just for our listeners that may not be aware of that, you know, sure. naloxone? Yeah. Yeah, well, so, so naloxone, uh, you know, there's an opioid receptor and naloxone competes for that receptor. And so essentially it's the antidote uh, to, to uh, an opioid poisoning and uh, it works very quickly. Uh, and, um, you know, so that, that is the, uh, the, the antidote, uh, you know, to the problem. So, so having that around, uh, you know, is, is kind of your, uh, I guess, equivalent of a, uh, you know, of a, of a defibrillator, you know, on the wall. And we have defibrillators on the wall in, you know, every public place, but we don't have naloxone, right? We have airbags in cars. Uh, we don't have naloxone, you know, widely available, uh, uh, at least to, you know, people that need it. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, it's it's quite uh, amazing that, that that's not the case. And, and what are maybe some of the barriers to that? Why, why do you think that is? Either of you, feel free to jump in. <laughs> well, Mark, I'm sure you got a big long list of. <laughs> <laughs> 
well, this stigma is, you know, start with that, right? Um, people don't like the stigma associated with, with opioid use, right? And, and so why would I need this antidote, you know? Uh, that that's that's one of the things definitely and and um mark <laughs> yeah so i mean stigma is the biggest one i think ross you're right and then even among our profession as pharmacists and me you and i are both proud pharmacists let's face it even in our own backyard in the college in, in, in our own college among our own profession we got a lot of work to do like when we got to kind of open the the eyes and ears to to pharmacists to say listen you know what Opiate use disorder is not a character flaw, a moral insufficiency. It really is a mental health disorder. Unfortunately, because it's a relapsing condition, there will be drug use. There will be overdoses. We have a very toxic drug supply in Canada. There's tons of opioids around. People will overdose. We need to have naloxone around. We need to support these folks until they get better, which may take 15 years. So how are we going to do that? We're going to do that with wide access to naloxone, asking patients to have it, using it as a part of their tool. I, I, I like to equate naloxone is the EpiPen for opioids. Absolutely. It's a nasal spray in some places and an injection in others. And it works the same way, you know, like, a, like, like an EpiPen. It doesn't remove peanuts in the body. It doesn't remove the opioids, but it can provide valuable seconds and minutes to get those paramedics there to keep them alive, keep them breathing, to give them another shot at recovery. And that's what we need to do for a humanity standpoint. And if you don't even believe the anti-stigma campaign, you're not a big fan of uh, of supporting people with drug use and accepting that it is a mental health disorder, then think of your dollars and cents. It is cheaper to give everyone naloxone in Canada than to treat an overdose that costs 17 to 20 grand. Wow. Yeah, that's a big difference. Go, go ahead, Ross. Sorry. <laughs> well, I know. I mean, so, so well stated. I mean, um, there's no stigma associated with an EpiPen. Right. Right. <laughs> right. Nobody <laughs> thinks twice about, uh, you know, being offered an EpiPen. And, and yet, you know, um, there's, there's all this stigma associated with, with uh, naloxone. Uh, incredible. Yeah, people think if you, cause, because you carry a naloxone kit or ask for a naloxone kit that you're a drug user. Yeah. You're not, you're a superhero. You cannot even use naloxone on yourself because you're actually unconscious in an overdose. Yeah. You're ready for surgery, yeah. right? <laughs> you're actually becoming a superhero by carrying one. And that's what you don't understand. You're becoming a superhero first responder to help somebody else in this crisis. Yeah. A lot cheaper than carrying around a defibrillator. Yes, you're right. <laughs> it's a little easier so, to carry too. Yeah. <laughs> for sure. For sure. All really good points. So, so what do you, what is the pharmacist role then, you know, both of you as pharmacists, what, what is, what are your roles in, in this fight? Well, Mark, do you want to start? Sure. I guess my role is awareness, right? So, you know, pharmacists ultimately, we're not, first of all, let's get this out on this podcast. We are not pill counters. Please, for, for the love of God, stop putting us on TV. <laughs> okay, we are actually healthcare professionals and mainly what we are, we're educators, right? So we like to educate patients on drugs, how to use them properly, what to watch out for. We communicate with other health professionals about, hey, this interacts with that. So now we have a, the the responsibility and the obligation during this opioid crisis and being the gatekeepers of opioids, that we have to educate our patients about the risks. We have to screen for the high-risk addiction client. And then we have to educate practitioners, physicians, nurse practitioners who are prescribing that we should also be adding naloxone to that prescription to make sure that if there's a case there's an accidental ingestion or too much or diversion, that there's a naloxone kit in the community to help prevent that. 
Yeah, and absolutely. is that really? Sorry, Go ahead, yeah. sorry. <laughs> um, no, I, I, you know, absolutely. We, we, you know, in a way, we're like the ultimate public health um, professional, right? Because we're so accessible. I mean, how many public health units are there? Right? They do good work, but they're, you know, a few in the city, maybe, uh, right? And and nobody goes to them. Uh, whereas, how many pharmacies are there? Uh, so we're kind of the ultimate public health health professional, and. And I think, you know, just to build on what Mark was saying, the, um, you know, the, the statistics are that uh, between a quarter and a third of overdoses uh, are occurring with, pres with uh, prescription opioids, right? And the only place you can get a prescription opioid is through a pharmacy. So right off the bat, a, th a quarter to a third of the ones we could intervene on, right? That's not to mention all the other ones, right? But, right. but uh you know, that, that's, that's huge, right? From a public health point of view. So well said, Ross. And, and yeah. then the thing is too, is that, okay, so public health, well, first of all, pharmacies are open late and on weekends, okay? Mm -hmm. Public health is not usually, no disrespect. And I'm, I, I'm on the overdose task force with the Ottawa Public Health. I, and they're one of my biggest partners. We do a ton of great work together in our community. That being said, COVID has hit them hard. Resources are diverted right now. They need every body possible and they're hiring back retired nurses to kind of just deal with this absolute pandemic. But during this pandemic, as we just mentioned, the epidemic of opioid use is still growing underneath it. So now it's our turn to step up as public health professionals, like Ross said, and get out in the community. Remember, going to a pharmacy or going to a public health nurse, people find very uh, stigmatizing potentially and or triggering. Mm. Listen, maybe their addiction started at the pharmacy. They don't want to go back in there. So we have to, we, you know, we have to support them through not just the opioid users and people who are using opioids, but their friends, their families, and people who live in high-risk communities. It has to start extending out past people who are just getting opioids. Well, and that's actually, a, that's a really good point too, because I would think that there's less stigma in going to a pharmacy than there is to go to public health. So again, it speaks to that accessibility thing, which is, you know, for doesn't matter what the intervention is, doesn't matter what the disease state is, accessibility to where the people actually are is key. And, you know, you could be talking about hypertension, you could be talking about all kinds of things. Um, accessibility uh, you know, as we've defined it, is 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 so important because if you don't have that, doesn't matter if you're a great clinician. It doesn't matter because right. if people can't get to you, or there's you know all these barriers, um, it's it's kind of irrelevant, right? And so that's what we have going for us uh, as pharmacists is, is the is the accessibility. That makes a lot of sense. So so thinking about uh, the pharmacist role uh, further. I, I, I know that there was a recent document that was created for pharmacists. Uh, Ross, did you want to talk a little bit about the background to that and, and where it led? Sure, sure. Well, I guess there's a couple of things that we, we did, but um, uh, essentially um, we, we had a meeting of, of experts uh, uh, in the field uh, around um, pharmacy and, and um and the opioid crisis. Uh, and, and so that was a really, really uh, informative meeting. As part of the homework uh, for that meeting, um, my uh, master's student, uh, Randy So, had, had been working on, a, on an evaluation of um, 
kind of the barriers to uh, naloxone use through pharmacies, because I knew that that's what we were going to be talking about. And so he did a, a you know, coast to coast uh, a review of that. And, and I know, Mark, you you helped us a lot with it. And, and um, you know, it was pretty eye opening that, that, you know, only about 50% of the provinces even have um, pharmacies involved, uh, which, you know, makes zero sense to me. Uh, and, and so that was one of the eye-opening things. And then, you know, there's, there's great disparity between whether pharmacists are, you know, if it's even available for one thing, and then whether pharmacists are even paid uh, to do it. And, you know, that's not even, um, you know, if you're interested in, in, um, in trying to, to address this crisis, uh, in a lot of provinces, pharmacists don't even have the tools uh, to be able to do that. And so that's the first thing you know, that we, we had talked about. Uh, and, and uh, you know, uh, then we, we started to talk about who should um, pharmacists give naloxone to. We went through a big discussion about the risk factors. We went through, um, you know, uh, all of those kinds of, of uh, barriers that might, um, might happen. And we talked about different sorts of approaches. We talked a lot about the stigma uh, and, and um, what we decided was that the best thing we could do is provide a guidance document for pharmacists. So we, we looked to see if anybody else had done this. And you know, amazingly, nobody had done this, pharmacy or not. Uh, and, and so there were no guidance documents on, on, on naloxone use. So we decided, well, we've got all these smart people in the room. Um, why don't we come up with our own evidence-based uh, guidelines document. So I think we're the first ones actually to come up with a, a document like this and it's directed towards uh, pharmacists in particular. And the bottom line from, you know, from our guidance, uh, our, our guidelines document is that we decided that the best approach was that all patients prescribed uh, an opioid should receive a take-home naloxone kit with appropriate counseling from their pharmacist and follow-up uh, with them. And we, we went through some details on what is the language you should use and here you need this, you know, that's not going to work. Um, and, and uh, you know, that's where some of the ideas about calling it your EpiPen uh, for opioids, uh, um, you know, th those kind of things that come from very experienced uh, experts, those are the kinds of tools that, that people need. You need a little script to, to say, you know, you don't want to say, well, you look kind of shady, so you need a a naloxone kit. Uh, you want to say, look, I give this to everyone uh, because of the potential harms. Well, that's that's great. And so this document uh, really, as you said, is the first guideline on this topic for pharmacists that's directed towards pharmacists. Is that correct? Yeah. Yes. As far as I know. I know, Mark, have, yeah. you, have, you've never uh, seen anything. I mean, there's been a couple little snippets in pharmacy magazines about little things we've developed in the past about Hey, just like a little piece of information, but not an evidence-based document like this, Ross. It's very, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty wonderful. So, yeah. And, and so, where would if you're a pharmacist and you want to access this uh, this guideline, where would you go to 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 get that? So it um, it's open access, so it doesn't matter if you're a subscriber or not. But it's the Canadian Pharmacist Journal, so it's uh, cpjournal.ca, and then you'll see it there. Uh, and so, it, as I said, it's open access. Anybody can download that. And, uh, you know, hopefully in the future, we're going to develop some tools uh, to go along with that. But for now, 
the document is is available free of charge uh and um and you know that's a starting point but what we got to do is we got to go a step further now and get it out to people which is of course what we're doing today but also um you know to give people the tools to uh to be able to do this and uh you know we're even thinking in the future um we should be studying this we should be keeping some statistics uh and, and seeing if if we can't um uh allow you know, give pharmacists the the opportunity to show how how they can uh, improve these you know this issue. Ross is too nice. The reason why I say that <laughs> I am not <laughs> is the reason why is that we should give pharmacists the opportunity to make the decision to do it. Whereas my vote on the panel was let's make this a standard of practice at every college so that they have to do it. Um, so you know, obviously, I know we can't do that yet, and you know that needs a buy-in from a whole level of healthcare, but certainly that's, that's how passionate I feel about this document. Um, it's a fantastic start because we haven't been talking about this before and uh, pharmacists need to be aware that they need to be doing this. And I believe it's their, it's their professional responsibility. Um, and I would like that our colleges would adopt that attitude and make it a standard practice, but we'll see how that goes, but we're not stopping here. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, actually you, 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 you were the one that brought up that idea. Well, let's make it the law actually a standard practice. And, and I actually spoke to a couple of registrars. I don't know if I told you this, Mark, but no. I spoke to a couple of registrars about this and they said, you know, that's a very good idea, but we don't, we, we tell you things you can't do. We, we, don't, we don't make laws about what you, what you need to do. Yeah, you know? yeah, however, however, I think everyone agreed, everyone I spoke to agreed and they said, no, it should be, you know, a, a pharmacist practice should be proactive and and it should be in the patient's best interest, right? And this is absolutely in the patient's best interest. So, it it um, it does fit very well. It's just that they are not really set up to say, if this you must do this, yeah. right? But it is a standard of practice, and so, um, you know, at least we have that sort of backing. Uh, what yeah. we need to do is, I mean, it's almost a cultural change. We need to say that it is unacceptable not to do this. And, and you know, there's lots of things in pharmacy where we, we need to change that culture. Uh, right. You have a responsibility for this patient. And, and in fact, I could see Mark saying, <laughs> um, you dispense an opioid, you're responsible for it. You better damn well make sure that they get a naloxone kit. I kind of do. Um, so <laughs> in, in, in Ottawa, I mean, here's, here's an example. During the whole batch for patch with fentanyl patch for patch perm program, that's now law in Ontario, and that went through Royal Assent to the government and then back down to the colleges. Um, there wasn't buy-in in Ottawa. In the pharmacy, I was in Ottawa doing it. I was like, wicked. This is awesome. I'm doing great. Look at me go. Go, Bernsey. Pat on my own back. And I was doing nothing because I couldn't get buy-in from my community which required buy-in from the police, required buy-in from, from physicians and all the pharmacists. It wasn't until I went to North Bay with Tom Robinson, the police force there, they had a community town hall and they had in a small, small region, buy-in. Once they had buy-in, they showed enough of examples of decreased overdoses due to fentanyl uh, through coroner data that they thought this is a good idea. We need to kind of get that same body of momentum based on, we can always measure how many kits are dispensed. And then we'll have that data to go back to college and saying, government, we got to do something here. Right. And that's, what's going to happen eventually, but we just got, it's just going to take a while to get there. 
Yeah. And, you know, it would be really interesting to, to, to have running statistics on the proportion of opioids dispensed versus the proportion of, of uh, naloxone kits that are dispensed. I know it's very small. And we actually have it. We, we have data in Ontario of uh, opioid harms per kits dispensed in the region. And um, what they do know is that if that number is large, there's more kits per opioid harm, then that's a good thing because it means more people are actually getting to the uh, emergency departments. And if you look at Ottawa data right now, because we are such passionate advocates here for the, for, for the provision of naloxone, uh, and that's across the board, whether it be nurses in doctor's offices and public health propaganda and Mark Barnes and RespectRx and everybody else involved, that because of that, we are seeing more people get, we have very, and especially during COVID, high numbers of people making it to emerge and living and their overdose data is not quite high yet, which is great, which is great. So that's what we'll do. We'll keep that and we'll keep that going. Mm -hmm. Well, that's, that's wonderful. Well, I, I, I really appreciate you talking about the guidelines and it's, uh, you know, I'll also put a link in the details of the podcast so that people can access it. Uh, right. But I was curious, you know, also just about personal stories that you might have with having dispensed uh, naloxone. I, I'm sure you have some quite yeah. amazing stories. <laughs> I do. Yeah. I mean, yes. so for, first of all, I mean, I mean, I've given out, um, I can't even tell you, I won't tell you how many naloxone kits. It's just, I can't even keep up. Um, wow. This is a huge passion advocate. Personal stories are quite lovely. Um, and during the training seminars that I do, and I've done hundreds that they, thousands probably, you know, you, you always catch the stories and they come back at the end. They can tell you their own personal story about naloxone saved their loved one, kept them alive. Um, I know from my own personal story that young gentleman in Manitick was partying with his brothers. If there was naloxone there, he would still be alive. That's my first story, my bad story. The good stories are Ottawa Public Health gets two calls per day of someone using naloxone. Um, I did a training seminar, mine are always recent, last week with a uh, supportive housing complex in Ottawa uh, with a maintenance staff who was actually in a high-risk neighborhood. The maintenance staff did my training on a Wednesday. Thursday morning, they rolled in to work, and there was a gentleman, blue in the face, gurgling, starting to shake in the stairwell. Wow. He remembered it. As clear as day, grabbed his naloxone kit that was in his toolbox, and within 30 minutes, or within sorry 30 seconds, the gentleman was breathing again. Called 911, and the the best part of this story is that the gentleman came back, the person who was an overdose, and he bought the maintenance staff a coffee. Well, it's a guy wow. who has funds and realized that this guy had saved his life, right? So, I mean, this is the kind of stories you hear all the time. So it's quite interesting. Yeah, yeah. that's unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, what a line of work you both are in and, and you know, it, and the, the fight against this, you know, because it's so, can be such a tragedy and the fact that there's something there that can prevent it is, you know, we don't well, always remember, have- even though, even though Ross and I, you know, we, we're passionate advocates, we're pharmacists, we developed the guidelines. Ross teaches so many people. I do the same thing. We're not the heroes. It's the people who choose to get naloxone and use it are the real people that should be applauded by this. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's, that's the point to make. It's, it's not, it's not about us. Uh, it's about the people that we can empower. Uh, and uh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, that, what fantastic uh, conversation this has been and, uh, really inspiring. So thank you both. And 
you know, I'll definitely provide that link to the guideline and I'm sure our, our uh, um, listeners will be really impressed with this, this episode and how passionate you both are. So Excellent. thank you very much. Thank you. Well, thank you.